My name is Ginny. I'm an alcoholic. I'm so happy to be here. I'm going to do what I do always when I speak in AA. I'm going to ask God to come in and speak the words he'd have me speak tonight. And if you take that moment, have God open the ears so that you hear whatever it is that you need to hear tonight. If you take that moment with me, please. Yeah, takes away all my angst. I'm not nervous. I'd unzip and show you everything on the inside, not in a naked way. But I'm here to tell you the good news, you guys, all these newcomers, my God. The good news is you never have to drink again. Better news is you're on a spiritual path. It's like that thing when you walk in the doors of AA, it's like that thing at the airport. It moves you and your baggage. Right <laughs> and guess what? I've got two models. Well, actually three. The first one is uh, persistence pays off. And that's the truth. If you stay here and you do what we do here, you're going to get it. The second thing is, just like when we were drinking, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. And that's what service is like here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the next thing is, God is with us. Magic. She gave me a card that said magic. I said, I was just going to say the magic is in this room tonight. I felt it. I felt it when we walked in. We got here very early. God is in our presence. Maybe it's this whatever we're in, church, I guess. And that's another thing. You can have your own church here. You don't have, I mean, you can go to your own church and still be a, a, an essence of AA. You know, it says that in the big book. This is just the beginning. Um, should I tell my story? God, I hate my story. Yeah. Anyway, I was born in Detroit, Michigan in 1938. That's rigorous honesty. They talk about that. In the and uh, the second thing is I was going to tell you before I started my story is um, if you're here, you're one of the chosen people. I truly believe we are the chosen people. We've already done our hell on earth. We already did all the bad shit we could ever have to do. And we don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to trip over that because it's in the past. You can't trip over something that's in front of you. And if you're in, you know, you got to go to court next week or this, take God with you because he'll clear the path for you. You'll have magic happen here that happens no place else. I mean, things were, and, and, and you know, I always felt so undeserving. You know, I did not deserve to have what I gotten for fun and for free. I had the miracle reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had the miracle of God came in and kind of whitewashed my soul. And I knew he was there because I prayed to him and I said, I'm not seeking, I'm begging. And I'll tell you that part of my story. But the truth is, I did not deserve it. None of us have to deserve it. We, we earned it already, but God gave us the gift of sobriety. I believe in divine intervention because that's how I got to you. I had no intention of ever quitting drinking, ever. It worked for me and it was working fine. You guys call me a periodic when I got here. 
because I didn't have to detox and do a 30 day here or there, you know, I came right through the, the doors of AA and uh, jumped right in with both feet because I'd had that miracle reading the big book. And that, I guess I do love my story because <laughs> that is my story. Um, I was born in Detroit, like I said, I was orphaned very early. My dad was in the service. My mom went to work downtown Detroit to help supplement that uh, allotment check she was getting because we were at war with, going into war with Hitler. Like I said, I was born in 38. We actually went into war 40, 41, something like that. And um, I had an older brother and an older sister and I was the baby. And uh, one day my mom came home. We were living with my grandmother. She's French, Irish, and English. And she said, uh, my mom said, um, I'm taking the kids and I've met this guy and I'm going to get married again. And my grandmother said, you can go live a life of sin, but you're not taking these three beautiful French Irish Catholic babies with you. She said, you get your head screwed on straight. You get a divorce from that husband of yours. And she said, you can come back and get your children. And six months after my mom left, my grandmother died of a massive heart attack, leaving us kids in about five, 10 months, we, my sister and I had malnutrition. They called it rickets back in the day. And uh, we were put into a hospital and then we were put into an orphanage, St. Vincent de Paul. I'm from Michigan, like I said. So I lived all over the state of Michigan. They finally started fostering us out because we were at war. There was not money for charity and charitable, uh, giving charity to children. So they would pay you to take children into your home. And it was a lot less than running a big orphanage. So I was, um, I'd like to tell you that the people that took me in took me in because I was such a cute little girl and they wanted to have that beautiful little family. But the truth of the matter is they got $8 a month for us and it was like egg money to the, to the people that I lived with, you know, the uh, farm, farm ladies that I lived with. Their husbands were in the service. They needed that cash flow. And so they'd take three kids in similar to their own children's age They'd send away to St. Vincent Paul for the new clothes, my new clothes. Their kids would wear them first, and then I'd get them second. So by the age of six years old, I knew it was me against the world. I knew these people did not have my back. I knew I wasn't there to be part of their family. I knew that I was an outsider, and, um, and I kind of cloaked myself in the armor of the adult. It was like, I knew I had to take care of me. Today, I say I was like a little, um, a little bulldozer with tits, you know. <laughs> Every time, I, and, I, and I knew I was a bad little girl. And my sponsor made me look at that. And she said, Jeannie, why would you call yourself a bad little girl? And I said, well, because every time I went back to the home, when I did something wrong in one of those homes, you know, Jean would say to me, Jeannie, Jeannie you do that again, you're going back to the home. And every time I did something, bad, you know, I got sent back to the home. So I thought I was bad. And I still felt like that when I came to AA, I was a bad little girl. And, but by that time I'd earned it. I was a bad little girl. Uh, so I'm in 12 different homes before I was nine years old, which tells you I wasn't a very good little girl. And, um, and my girlfriend's uncle finally signed me out of St. Vincent de Paul because she needed me to be her lower companion. We used to hitchhike to Memphis. That was the next town over from where I live. And we'd go drinking with a guy. His name was uh, Howard Johnson. Not the guy that owns Howard Johnson's, but that was his name. He drove a big Chevy with the bubble skirts, a 1954 Chevy. Oh, my God. We had so much fun. 
we drank beer out of those long neck bottles and then we'd throw the empties out at the signs along the way because lived in the country, there was nothing else to do. So we'd hitchhike to Memphis and hang out with Howard Johnson and, and um, one day um, her mom, yeah, oh, and, and so her uncle signed me out of St. Vincent de Paul. He didn't really take responsibility for me. So I had to get a job and work, you know, I was, I had, I had gone through the 11th grade, but I was ready to go back to the, to, to the 12th grade to graduate, but I had to get a job. So I went to Coney Island Hot Dog and I'm working at Coney Island in Port Huron, Michigan, which is a town of about 60,000 people. And to me, that was a metropolis because I came from the country, real country. And uh, I'm working at, uh, and the reason I can tell you about this part of my story is because when I got to AA, my sponsor made me write on it. She said, Jeannie, you knew this guy three weeks and you married him. She said, were you in love? And I had to think about it. Did I even like this guy? It was like jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. You know, I thought, did I even like him? And, and so she made me write about it because that's what sponsors do. So I went home and I wrote, um, I'm working at Coney Island and he would wait for my station. So I knew he really liked me when he came in, that him. And uh, she said, well, what else, what did you like about him? So I wrote, he was tall, dark, and handsome. Well, he was only dark and handsome, but two out of three aren't bad. And, and, she said, and I said, and he told me that, um, and he didn't have any anger issues. And she said, well, how did you know that? I said, well, he took me to the drive-in once and I had read this article about anchovies in a salad and the salad was a Caesar salad and they talked about the essence, the aroma, the consistency. I thought, I wonder what an anchovy is, probably some kind of a rare vegetable. And um, so he, he takes me to the drive-in and we stop at a liquor store just to get chips and you know, not drinking, I wasn't drinking um, chips and that kind of stuff because when you go to the drive-in, they had like a cantina or someplace where you would go get, but everything was so expensive, he said. So we stop at the liquor store and get this stuff first. While he's buying popcorn, potato chips, Slim Jim, I'm over there looking at the anchovies because I want to know what they taste like. And he comes over, I've got a can of them in my hand. And he, I said, look at, these aren't just regular anchovies. They're from um, Portugal rare anchovies <laughs> and he goes well what's an anchovy i said well i think it's like those little baby corns that they put in salads and stuff but i'm really not sure and he said well how much are they and i said well they're 10 cents a can he said well get you there's my man anchovies in a backup and so on the way because i already have the ism i'm not an alcoholic yet but i already have the ism and I want to open them right now because instant gratification. So I'm trying to open this can. And I don't know if you've ever tried to open with those keys on that little tiny can. I just couldn't get it started. And he goes, don't worry about it, Dal. Reach in the glove compartment there. I've got a, I've got a tool in there. And I'll do that for you. And so I hand him the anchovies. I hand him that tool. He opens that can. It spills all over. He's shaking it. He thought they were moving. He throws them back toward me. <laughs> We get anchovy juice all over us, but does he, does he care? No, he hugs and kisses me through that whole movie. I know he loves me. I smell like a dead fish and he's still kissing me. 
And so I knew he didn't have any anger issues because I've lived with a lot of people that men are always slamming the door, cursing and going out, you know. And so um, he had no anger issues. And she said, well, what else? And I said, well, he told me he worked at the post office. In the post office, I knew the people that worked at the post office, their kids came to school better dressed. They had those new shoes every semester. They got that white picket fence around them. Those are people that work at the post office. And so he'd be a perfect man to marry so that I could have all those children. My whole life, the only thing I ever dreamed of was to get married and have that family that I never had and give to my kids what I never got. And so this is a perfect client, I mean, perfect uh, uh, guy for this. So I had that marked on my little clipboard. And I said, and then he also told me that he uh, came from Ohio. Ohio, how exotic is that? I'm going to travel. And um, so one day he, he asked me to marry him. I say, yes, we go across. He has to take me across the state line. The same guy that signed me out of St. Vincent Paul had to sign for him to marry me. We go across the state line to Angola, Indiana, because that's what we do when you're young in Michigan. You want to go get married. And we went to Angola, Indiana. We got married by a judge, Judge Mudge. I should have known something right then and there. While we're filling out the paperwork, I see on his paperwork, it says something about Phyllis Lane. And I go, I look at him and I go, well, who is Phyllis Lane? And he said, that's my first wife. I'll tell you about it on the way home. And I thought, a big red flag when I'm, you know, I'm 16 or 17, whatever I was. And I think, oh my God, he's been married before. That means we can never get married in the Catholic Church. And he's got an ex-wife. You know, I'm fuming by this time, but I'm just, I still marry the guy because what are you going to do? I'm in a you know, state I don't know anybody. So we get married. We get black sweet cherries on the way home. We rent a little apartment on Water Street in Port Huron, Michigan. I'm cooking, I got the little white apron on, my husband's at work, I'm making Spam, I'm baking it, he loves Spam, and he loves it, he loves it crispy, so I'm baking it, I put those little crosses in it, and I put little cloves in it, you know, so that it's crispy and beautiful, sometimes if I want to be gourmet, I'll put a little grape jelly on top of it, um, and so he comes home, the place is steamy, it's wintertime. He comes home and he goes, guess what? Well, you know me, I love surprises. I go, what? He goes, so the job at the post office is finished. I went, finished? What about that wind, rain, sleet, and snow shit? Finished? It's, a it's not just a job, it's a career. How could it be finished? He had failed to tell me he was painting the post office and he and his crew were headed back to Ohio, which was his saving grace. You know, I finally got to go see Ohio which I found wasn't very exotic. And so he checks back in with the service. He's been in the 82nd Airborne before he knew me. And uh, he re-enlisted in the 82nd Airborne. We go down to, uh, to uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina. And when I get down there, I find out that I'm pregnant. I've been married four months by this time. All my friends counted. That's how I know. And um, make sure I hadn't been married before I got married. I mean, pregnant before I got married. So I have my first baby, December 27th, 1957. We're back in the 82nd Airborne. We got that allotment check. We got that money coming in. I have my second baby, December 20, 20, uh, December 27th, 1957. My second one, December 28th, 1958. My third, February of 60. We missed 59 by two months. 
he's my leap year baby. He's only 12. I'm only 85, but I've got a 12-year-old. <laughs> How did that happen? Anyway, I love my sons. I love my sons. I adored my sons. They were exactly the dream I wanted. This is my whole dream. I've got these three beautiful babies. By this time, I'm living in Europe in the 80s. Uh, we transferred from the 82nd to the 101st. I'm living in Germany. I have my beautiful apartment in Germany. My husband's doing what some men do when you say no at home. He's uh, staying out late at night and I don't care because it's saving wear and tear on me. And uh, by this time I know where those babies are coming from and I don't want any more of them. I've got enough with these three. They want something from me. When you haven't been nurtured, you don't know how to nurture. I knew how to take care of babies. I knew how to keep them clean. I knew how to change the diapers, keep the house clean. The only time I really enjoyed my kids was when they were sound asleep and smelling good in their cribs. I think that I have several memories of, you know, beautiful pictures of my kids, but the truth of the matter is they wanted something from me that I didn't have and I didn't know where to get it from. And I felt like a failure, even when I was still married to him. When we came back to the United States, I rented a tiny little house. I told him, you know, don't touch me anymore. I don't like you anymore. We're, you know, I didn't even know about divorce. First of all, I didn't know a man could cheat on you. I, I had no idea that once you got married, I thought you're married for life. And, you know, that's how it went, because that's all I'd ever seen. And so I was devastated by the fact that he wasn't going to be my husband. But I knew I had to take care of these kids. I didn't want what happened to me to happen to my kids. So I'm, I live in this little apartment, he, uh, a house really, a little a cement block house, three bedroom. And uh, my, the guy that had signed me out of St. Vincent de Paul, my girlfriend's uncle, he had built these three houses for his kids, for his uh, nieces and nephew. Two of them had moved away, so one, two of them were empty and I could live in one of them. Pay, I paid rent. So I got that allotment check. I look back at the best time of my life. I've got my three kids. I got that allotment check. Everything is rosy. I don't have a him to have to, you know, do stuff with. And um, I can throw them a ham sandwich every once, spam sandwich every once in a while out the back door. They're outside. I got the whole world behind us. There's a woods back there. They're building shit back there. And, um, and, I, and I look back at that time as the best time of my life. I've got my three sons, my dreams are, are coming true. Um, one day I go out there to get that allotment check and there's no money. And about four months, I literally am watching my children starve. I remembered I was Catholic. All of a sudden I got in touch with Father Farrell, the priest of my, my uh, community. And uh, he helped me son some, I got in touch with the Red Cross. One day there's a knock on my door. The kids are outside playing. I'm at the door, but I don't open it because it's only bill collectors and I don't have any money. And I look out and I see three beautiful people like you guys out in front of me. They've got boxes in front of them and I figure they're selling something, And uh, but I don't answer and they knock again. They know somebody's there. And uh, finally I open the door to tell them to move on because I don't want to waste their time and mine. And so I tell them I don't have any money. They said they were from the town next door, Memphis, Michigan, where I used to hitchhike. They were from a church there and they had boxes of food. They'd heard there was a family in trouble. I'd like to tell you that I welcomed them and I was grateful and thanked them. 
the truth of the matter is a wave of shame came over me, a wave of guilt came over me. All the things I'd been saying to myself for the last three months, I'm not a good mother, I'm incapable of taking care of my kids. I don't have an education where I can make enough money to provide for my own children. I'm gonna put my kids through, and you know, all this is going through my mind. And I think they saw how com uncomfortable I was and they kind of backed off, backed away, leaving that stuff. The kids and I brought that, those, those boxes in and we unloaded them. And, they had their first big meal for a long time. We unloaded all this stuff, put it in those cupboards, and the kids and I danced around this stuff. There was little gifts for them in there, little toys and stuff for them in there. And I, and I look back at that and I thought, God, why couldn't I have just been a little more gracious? Three days later, there's another doc knock on the door and I already had that righteous indignation, even though I wasn't drinking. I thought to myself, what do they think? We're some kind of gluttons here that we're going to eat that kind of, you know, I thought there's more people bringing us stuff. This time, those three people were from ADC, aid to dependent children, and they were there to take my children. They too had heard that there was a family in trouble and I was incapable of taking care of my children. They pushed past me. They didn't wait to be invited in. They pushed past me and they uh, went in, the guy went into the kitchen and the two women stood there in my little living room and they said things to me like, you're incapable of taking care of the children because you don't have an education. You can't, um, you can't get a job where you can make enough money and we'll put the children in foster homes and we will teach. And the minute I heard the word foster homes, my head swelled up, my ears started ringing, my face got beat red. And my thought was, you cannot take my children. I'm a good mother, you can't take my children. And just as that was happening to me, the guy comes out of the kitchen and he said to the two women, we cannot take your children today. And they go, well, like, why not? They're ready to take them. And why not? And he said, her, her cupboards are filled with food. This family is not in trouble. And so they had to leave. And finally, Father Farrell got in touch with my husband. He'd gotten an early discharge from the service because he wanted to start his own um, restaurant and bar, which he did and opened, but it wasn't making the kind of money that he thought he would when it first began so that he could take care of us and the new family he was creating. And so finally he came across country and I said, you better come because if you don't come and take the kids, if you don't come send us money, they're going to take our children. And he said, I'll come and get the boys. And he came and got my three sons. And I must tell you that he asked me that I could go too. But I had gone across country with him once and I was not going to go again. And I thought to myself, I'll get a job. I'll make enough money while the kids are gone and I'll be able to go get my kids or I'll find another him this time with money. No, I'll find another him and and I'll get married and come and get my kids. And so I went back and forth and visited my kids for the next three and a half years. And every time I went, I had to have a little bigger bottle or something. Because by this time, I don't have my children with me. I need a distraction. You better take me to the best restaurant. You better invite me to the best parties. You better buy me that best purse because I need a distraction. I don't have my children with me. And I drank behind that not having my kids. I drank like that for three years going back and forth to see those kids. And the last time I went, I got on that Greyhound bus after staying up two days, working two shifts at my girlfriend's uncle's bar. 
taking whites so that I could stay up for two shifts, cleaning my entire house, getting on that great home bus that I took every time I went. And this time I sat behind that bus driver because he always knows the best place to get the biggest cocktail and the best cheeseburger. And so I, I'm sitting there with a little bigger bottle of Southern Comfort this time. I love my Southern Comfort. And I'm sitting there and I hear this guitar player. I hear the strings of a guitar and I turn around and look and here's this tall, lanky, beautiful faced young guy, blonde hair. He was a hippie. I always wanted to be a hippie, but I had three kids by the time hippie was happening. And so he's playing that guitar and he's looking at me. You know that book, Janelle. And he's giving me that look and I'm thinking, oh my God, I have no makeup on. You know, if this guy thinks I'm cute now, wait till I get my makeup on, I will show him. And so we stop at the first place. I go into the, I go into the ladies' room and I'm sitting in the sink. Now I've taken whites for two nights, right? So it takes me five hours to take put on an eyebrow, you know, and I'm putting lashes on. This is in the 60s. And I'm putting lashes on and I'm doing the hair and I'm looking at myself thinking all the thoughts about what this new husband is going to look, how many kids we might have together. I mean, I'm dreaming. I get back out to get on that Greyhound bus. That Greyhound bus is long gone. But there's this big sign that's saying lounge, lounge. All I have is my makeup. All my other stuff is in, the, in that first bus. So I go into that lounge. I put $5 on the bar because I work in a bar. I put $5 on that bar to that bartender. I know how to treat a bartender. And I'm telling him, make sure I get on that next bus because my kids are there waiting for me. Make sure I get on that Greyhound bus going to Kansas City because I, I, gotta, I just got to be on that bus. Well, I'm doing what unattended women do that Carol talks about in her story, you know. I'm falling in love at least five times in the two shifts I was at that bar, only with the guys and, um, and the bus board perhaps. And so finally, after this third bus, I think I missed three buses, uh, they finally poured me into that last bus. And by that time, I'm in the ozone. You know, I'm in that zone where nothing ever matters. Nothing matters now. I'm okay. I'm just at that nice, you know, overly drunk place. You know, thank God I got nice people around to help me. I take that bus ride. By the time I get there, my husband's been there three different buses now. He's not happy with me, we'll say. I see that look on his face and I think, oh shit, now I got to deal with this. You know, he talks out of the side of his mouth to me. He never talks directly at me or looks at directly at me because he doesn't like me and I don't like him. And I talk back out of the side of my mouth to him. And so... I'm headed down those steps of that bus, but I don't know if you've ever been on a Greyhound bus, but they have like accordion pleat door. I mean, that door, you move up against it or lean on it, it pushes back, you know, it goes way back. And I, I ended up tumbling out at his feet and he picked me up and kind of dusted me off and he gave me that look. This time he looked directly at me. He goes, Jean, I don't know what you're doing with yourself, girl, but every time you come, there's a little less of you. And you know, that pierced, that pierced that armor that I had that went directly to my heart. I knew what he was telling me was the absolute truth. My life was spiraling down and I can't do anything about it. 
What am I going to do? He looked at me again and he said, Jeannie, I can't bring our kids to you looking like that. He said, I'll put you into a motel. I'll bring the kids to you tomorrow. Take a shower, clean up, and I'll, I'll bring the kids to you tomorrow. And I guess he came the next day and he knocked on that motel door, but I didn't hear it. I slept right through it. I'd thrown myself across that bed and I slept right through it. The next day I get up and I think, I think it's the next day. I get up, I take a shower, I spot clean that green dress that I got on and I, I'm waiting for my kids. And I hear the gravel outside of this motel unit as he pulls up and I open the door and I see Carla. We call her Carla the midget behind her back. Carla, that other woman, the kids and I. And so she's sitting in the front seat with their new baby. And my kids are sitting in the back. And Bert comes in and he said, Jeannie, I got a proposition for you. I've been to the judge and he brings out this um, uh, paperwork and it's got a judge's signature on it where I can sign my children over. He said, every time you come, you disrupt our lives. You know, we got the kids going to the best schools. You see their you see their little uniforms hanging in the closet. Carla and I are doing a good job with the kids. You can come and see them anytime you you can have the kids anytime you're sober and clean and sober. But I can't I can't have you having the kids like that. We're not doing our children any good. And I'd like to tell you that I went to every court in the country and fought for my sons. But the truth of the matter is, there was a sense of relief that came over me. I don't have to show up for those kids. I'm not doing right by my children. They're doing much better than I am. I signed that paperwork and pushed it back to him. He said, I'll come to you tomorrow and, bring, and put you back on the bus. And uh, the next day he put me back on that bus and I, I mourned my children on that 14 hour bus ride home. I mourned my children on that bus drive. From then on, if you said, Jeannie, have you ever been married? I'd say, yes. Do you have children? I'd say, no. I denied my kids until I got to you. How did I get to you 10 years later, nine years later? I'm working at the Marriott Hotel. The girl that I go out drinking with every night. Oh, I forgot a whole big bunch. When I come back after signing my kids over, I, uh, I'm back at the bar that I work at. Are you giving me five minutes? 10, okay. I come back to the... Um, Pours your own, I'm at the bar. The guy that owns a bar down the street comes in and goes, Jeannie, you can't make any money to go get your kids in this town. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, uh, why don't you go to Detroit? I heard they're opening a Playboy club there. And I went, Playboy, what's that? And he said, well, it's a club where the girls are making more money than the guys that work at the uh, factories do down in Detroit. I said, George, I don't make enough money here to go to Detroit. And, and do that. And he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Don't we love that language? I go, what? He said, I'm going to bring you the money in a plain brown envelope. You go down to Detroit. If you make it at Playboy, he said, um, you can pay me back. And if you don't, you know, you don't owe me anything. You come back. If uh, Jerry Kiesler doesn't hire you at his bar, he said, I'll hire you at mine. And so I had nothing to lose. I got on that Greyhound bus. I went to Detroit. Um, I, I, by a fluke, I got hired. When I went down those stairs, um, I smelled the French perfume. Girls had come from all over the area because the only other club was in, in um, Chicago and ours was the second club to open. And uh, these girls had hair piled up this high. They had false eyelashes on. They had real fur coats. They had 
you know, hooker hose on and I'm smelling the French perfume and I looked like the country pumpkin. I had brown straight hair. I had a white coat, cloth coat on. I just wanted the world to open up and swallow me. I did not want to be in the presence of these people. I knew I was in a way over my head and in the wrong place, but I got hired because the bartender from corporate who was training the bartenders had come and opened the door for me and had flung me into Claire Elias, who was the funny mother's office. And he said, this is poor Yorn Jean, because he found out my name at the door. She thought I was a friend of her, him, so she, you know, we passed all these 45 other girls sitting there waiting all that time. And he put me right in her office. It was two girls already filling out the paperwork. And it's that thing in the back of the uh, Playmate, not that you ever looked at that page behind the Playmate, but it tells how, how old the girl is, where she went to school, her everything. And, um, and it also said what her hobbies are. So I had to fill all that out, you know, my weight and my size and what my waist size was and et cetera. So I wrote, wrote all that stuff down. And then it said, well, what was the last book you read? I lied through the whole thing. Mein Kampf. You know, I just come from Germany. I wanted them to think I was intelligent. Uh, what, what do you like to do on your days off? Oh, I love to ride horses. The only horses I'd ever been on was Bonnie and Queenie, the plow horses that you used to have to feed while they were tied up. You know, uh, what you, what else do you like to do in your days? I love to play tennis. I'd never, you know, had a tennis racket in my hand. What do you like to do in your days off? What the hell is a day off? I'd never had a day off in my life. A day off, what was that? And so I lied through the whole thing. And then they took me in and put this little uniform on me, little costume, and, um, and they hired me. I flew up those stairs because it was exactly what I needed. You know how I said you had to give me a distraction. This was a distraction. They were telling me that I was something better than I thought I was. You know, I had that badge, I'm gonna be a playboy bunny. I went to two weeks of bunny school. I worked for half for 11 years, traveled all over the world with them and had got an education that I never that I never could have afforded. Um, I'm living the high life and I'm drinking the way alcoholics do that have to be presentable and have to go to their job, you know. And I went to my job every day because it was my distraction too. So now I'm here, I transfer out here to the LA club from Detroit. Um, actually had worked, um, had opened 10 clubs for half in that time all over the country. And I'm here in Los Angeles and the girls were walking down the street practically topless when I got here. And I'm thinking, I'm not making the same kind of money that I used to make at Playboy. And so when I came out here, um, I had a three days, Playboy paid for everything. I had a 10 day leave of absence. Three days after I got here, the Playboy club here burned. They had a fire and they had to lay off uh, like 12 of their own girls. So I either had to go back to Detroit or Chicago and it was the middle of March and I hadn't uh, seen Disneyland yet. So I said, I'm, I'm, Judy Bradford was my bunny mother. She, I knew her from Detroit. And um, she said, Jenny, I can get your job at the ambassador if you want to stay, blah, 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 blah. So I had a roommate, her name was uh, Sharon King, Dean King's mother. She was Bunny Dolly with me. She was a friend of mine. So she and I got an apartment together and I stayed in California. <clears throat> and I'm drinking and using like alcoholic women do. You know, I get a job at the Marriott eventually and um, 
And I'm working with my bartender and my bartender's six, six months sober, Jay, Jay Stinnett. And um, he's six months sober and he still had the shakes. I know I'm an alcoholic, but I don't have the shakes yet. I can, I can drink for another 10 years at least. I was steady as a drum, I checked. And um, so when he got a year sober, we got him, he's in NAA. He's a year sober, we get him a stripper from down the street, you know, to come in and, and celebrate his AA birthday. <laughs> we didn't know about spirituality. <laughs> so now he, has, he gets married to one of my best friends who's a, bar, who's a waitress. She becomes a bartender, Jay Reeves. And um, she and I go, to, we live next door to each other, 1836 Strand, 1836 Strand in Hermosa Beach. I got the most beautiful apartment. I'm living the high life, you know. It's, I have to pedal fast to keep going, but I'm going. And I had no intentions of not drinking. And Jay, Jackie's wife, Jay's wife, Jackie, we have a common wall. They live next door. When I hear this knock on the wall, that tells me Jackie wants to go out drinking tonight. Jay must be going to one of those AA meetings. And so sure enough, 20 minutes later, Jackie comes to my door. She and I go out. We go out, stand, stay out until 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. We don't care. He went to one of those damn AA meetings. <coughs> And one day, a couple of years later, Jackie comes in and she goes, guess what, Jeannie, does that work? And I said, what? She said, I'm 30 days sober. Why? Why would you be there? She was a lightweight compared to me. She drank beer out of those long neck bottles. I'm drinking bowls full of Southern Comfort. I'm crushed ice, bowls full of Black Russian, bowls full of whatever, chapter three. And I went, Jackie, I had to go have a drink out of this margarita I got going on in a bus can over here just to talk to her about her going to Alcoholics Anonymous. It was like spitting up a furball. I couldn't even say it. Alcoholics <laughs> Anonymous, God, why? And so I came back and she said, oh, she said, I was 30, I'm 30 days sober. She said, and I was going to Al-Anon. And the reason I came to AA is my sponsor said, I'm angry all the time because I, I can't drink the way I want to living with a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. So she directed me to AA and she said, I'm 30 days sober. And she had that big 30 day grin, you know? And I said, Jackie, I just can't believe it. I had to go have another sip of that margarita. I'd come back and wipe my mouth, that salt off my mouth. They go, Jackie, so God, I'm not ready to go to those meetings. So she said, I said, oh, Jackie, if you belong in AA, you know I belong because you're a lightweight compared to me, but I'm not ready to go to those meetings. She said, oh, don't come till you're ready. She said, they mean business there. She said, they got shit hanging on the walls. They got bumper stickers. She said, they got a book. They got a book of their own, a big book. A big book, how big is it? Will it fit my Volkswagen, you know? She said, anyway, Jackie brought me the big book plain brown wrapper three days later. She said, you read this, you'll have an opportunity to get sober too, you might want to. And I thought, oh my God. Now in the meantime, they're going to A meetings, they're tapping empty chairs when they come in and they put my name on it. And um, they're praying me into Alcoholics Anonymous and that's the only way I could have gotten to. I was lovingly nudged into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. She brought me that big book. The only reason I read it was because I wanted not to have to lie to her about reading it. I wanted to tell her, yes, that I've read it. And so I do, just like you guys do, I start in the back of the book 
And, you know, I read your loving stories and when it hurts me because your stories touch that part of my heart that I can't get in touch with, when I hurt like that, I have to go across the street because I now have moved into an area where there are 11 places to have a cocktail because I did that out of convenience. I already had two 502s um, under my belt, but I do not want to quit drinking. And I start that book. One day I go to a, a, a shower. I, you know, I don't think it was your shower, but I went to a shower. They had 12 bottles of champagne open for like 14 girls, you know, or 15 of us. Yeah, but I have already decided I'm going to quit drinking. Not because of the book so much, because I've only read a couple of chapters in that back part. You know, I keep putting that book away. I have that book a year by the time I go to this shower where they have this champagne open. And I've decided two weeks ago that I'm not going to drink. And I could go two, two weeks without a drink. You guys call me a lightweight. No, you call me a periodic when I got here. And so I tip that glass over. I'm not going to have champagne. And so the girl said, Jeannie, you're the one that makes us stay out all night drinking. She said, you better have that glass of champagne. So I took that glass of champagne. I had like two little bubbles of it. We all know that's not drinking. And I get my car and my car wanted to go to every bar, everything that looked like a bar on the way home. But on the way home, I thought to myself, I got to read that book. I got to start at the front of it. I got to read that chapter where they say how they do it. You know, this time I know it's, now I know it's chapter uh, five and how it works, but I'm thinking how they do it. I go home and I read that book and I got to the part, first of all, I read doctor's opinion. I identified, I know I'm an alcoholic. Then I read Bill, Bill's story. I got some hope. I got some hope from Bill's story. Then I read chapter five all the way through it. I get to that part where it says, there are those two who cannot be rigorously honest. I know that's me and I'm not going to be able to have this. Then I read enough because I got enough faith from Bill's story. I read into the part where it says A, B, and C, God could and would if he were sought. I put that book across my chest and I looked up at the God of my understanding on that day. And I said, dear God, I'm not seeking, I'm begging you know what's going on inside of me. You know what my story is. You know that I'm a liar my whole life. You know that I'm a cheat. You know that I can't tell the truth. You know that I can't do this unless I know you're going to be there. And I had what they talk about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had that bush burning variety of a miracle. God came in and let me know that he was there. From that day to this, no alcohol has ever passed my lips. I have taken a hit off an outside issue, so I only cleaned 34 years sweetly clean and sober. I actually came in on 86, March 17th, 1986, on the fumes of St. Patty's Day. Uh, and now I claim April, uh, April 22nd of uh, 1988. 34 years squeaky clean and sober, coming up on 35. <coughs> and coming up on 85. Still looking for another hymn. Oh no, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. I love Alcoholics Anonymous and what it's done for me. I did not come to Alcoholics Anonymous to get my children back. I did not think they, I deserved to get my children back. But if you do the little bit of work that we do here in Alcoholics Anonymous, I had to do that ninth step. I wrote that ninth step letter to my kids, you know, and they found forgiveness for that mother that left them behind. You know, we have such a miracle here 
you can rely on God. That's another one of my, you know, persistence pays off. Not just know God. It doesn't matter if you know him or you don't. We don't know anything about electricity, but we rely on the fact that we flip a switch and it comes on. We don't know anything about that damn uh, Apple, uh, what is it, phone that I have. I don't know how it works. I, I'm not, I can't identify what it does, but I rely on it every day. You know, there's a few things you have to do here, but you can rely on God. Just like that phone, I have to touch it in certain places to call you. Oh, no, I'm just saying. But um, there's a few things that we have to do, just a few little things that you have to do here to relieve us of that, that bondage of self, to relieve us of that baggage that I brought in here. I've shared it with all of you today. My three kids have found the forgiveness. I have nine grandchildren who have never seen their grandmother have a cocktail. They adore me. They think I'm the most wonderful thing on earth. I would have kept my kids from having that for 32 years they've been in my life. You know, I have a son that's a nuclear engineer. I have a railroad engineer guy. I have a, a, a son that's a, a guitar playing, songwriting, beautiful boy, you know, man, that's my 12 year old. He's actually 62 or something now, 63. But the gifts that you've given me were not gifts that I came or like Carol said, the dreams that I wanted are not the dreams that I've gotten. The dreams that I've gotten are so much more and I wish I could give it to you. What I've gotten here, I wish I could give to you because for the first time in my life, I feel safely held. And I wanna thank you all for that. Thank you so much.